0: Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer, a climate journalist, and joining me is energy expert Boris Schneider. Our colleague Angelina Davidova is currently in the air on her way back to Russia. Shortly, we'll be joined by Olga Boyko for a special wrap-up episode of COP26. Olga is a campaigner at the Climate Action Network, focusing on Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia, but she's also well-versed on the situation in Russia. As usual, I'll bring you the latest climate news from the region at the end of this episode. So, has COP26 kept alive the 1.5-degree target, which would avert catastrophic climate change? What are the conclusions of this COP for Eurasia? And were activists and NGOs from the region capable of being represented at this historic climate summit? Boris and I discuss all of this and plenty more during our chat with Olga. COP president Alok Sharma has said the summit means that the 1.5 degree target is within reach, but its pulse is weak. I began by asking
1: Olga whether she agrees with this. I mean, I don't actually agree with the fact that the 1.5 degree has been secured in some way with this COP because there's a different problem that there's a popular opinion now becoming more and more popular about the fact that ah maybe we cannot achieve 1.5 after all. So maybe we should aim at... Um, 2 degrees or something like that, Uh, because Paris Agreement did say, like, uh, limit the temperature 2 degrees and do the maximum to limit it to 1.5. And so right now there's uh, more and more information about, ah, but can we really achieve 1.5? Maybe we should just drop that and and aim for 2. But that's actually, for me and for the network, as we discussed, that is counterproductive because it doesn't make sense to aim lower when we already understand that however high we aim, the results are still going to be lower. So we need to set the goals that actually, well, inspire us and we need to get as further from the um, devastating possibilities as we can. So it doesn't make sense to say that, ah well, we tried, you know, because this is the lives of the people we're talking about and the uh, economic instability, etc. So as the network, we clearly uh, support the 1.5 and that it's... uh, going to be super hard, but no one ever told that fighting climate change is going to be easy, uh, because this is the first time we do that as humanity. But definitely 1.5 needs to stay on the table, and we still need to uh, try and fix our goals and our actions uh, comparable to 1.5. We're
0: going to go into the details of the Glasgow Climate Pact, one after the next. But um, overall, what do you make of the final agreement?
1: I mean, I've been following mostly our countries of the post-Soviet uh, region. And uh, for me, I've seen some good signs from these countries. The fact that uh, the, uh, the Central Asia, for example, for the first time, they had their own pavilion. Uh, and so they were much more present in this sense. But still, civil society was almost non-present. Um, not only from, from Kyrgyzstan, uh, but like other like, countries of Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, like almost non you know, of the civil society, and then again, the same with Caucasus. So basically, our regional meetings, it was only Ukraine and Russian uh, civil society uh, organizations.
0: And how do you explain that disparity?
1: Uh well actually uh I was myself hesitant until the last moment whether I should even come um I couldn't come at the last moment but not because I decided to uh so I I was going to visit Glasgow but before that I was hesitant as many more of my colleagues from Ken uh from the international network as well because the, it was clearly going to be an unsafe cop it was clearly like uh, a mess you know in the beginning because we didn't know so much information uh so much of what we uh, should have known uh by the time like in august we still were you know in a blank so we tried to kind of um compare you know like Is it actually worth it going and being at risk and maybe putting other people at risk and we still don't know anything about the logistics and about testing and about like the um, are we in the red zone? And many of our countries were in this kind of like not green zone, you know, so, of course, the presidency did like the, the visas were easier to get. But still, if you live in Kyrgyzstan. You need to go to Kazakhstan to apply for your visa. So there's this simple matter that like um, made it impossible for people to come because it was too difficult logistically. And then Georgia was in the red zone. So for for different countries, it's different reasons, but mostly it's about actually uh, even on the on the normal day, it's it's difficult to get into Great Britain. And right now, it was uh, even more difficult. Um, And then there's problem within the countries. So the civil society being repressed and uh, not having enough uh, financial support to actually participate in such events. So there's that as well.
0: Within which societies in particular are you talking about?
1: ah uh, so many um so uh for example as i said like ukraine uh was present um in a quite good numbers i would say even youth delegation was present for the first time there were like three people but they were super active and uh, followed everything and so um this is like this is normal for us but for example uh, i was like However, I tried to follow, for example, the the Belarus. There was almost nothing to follow, you know. There was the the high-level speech, and and that's basically it. So the civil society of Belarus is scattered right now, and they are trying to kind of build new lives in some some other places in some other way. Then there are all these countries who are kind of like... uh, Mm, semi close I would say. Like Tajikistan is also—it's super hard in, in Uzbekistan to register a civil society organization and to manage funds coming from abroad, for example, or to fundraise nationally. Um, so, uh, the, like, yeah, in Central Asia, it's probably only Kyrgyzstan who is trying to, you know, develop the civil society. Um, and we have a lot of members there. Um, but in general, the region is still kind of suffering from this, the, the, the Soviet politics and the the fact that people did not understand that they had this power to actually change the system because it was not even an option. And that's what we need to do right now.
2: How urgent is the situation in the eyes of the Eurasian delegations that were there? Uh, did anyone treat the situation with equal urgency as, for example, small Pacific islands that were in the media?
1: This is actually a really good question because this is something that we're trying to build, um, the narrative that we're trying to build as civil society. For example, um, we were really advocating and will continue advocating, for example, for Kyrgyzstan, maybe Armenia, to join the Climate Vulnerable Forum. If you know, this is a, a forum of um, vulnerable countries. It uh, consists of 48 countries, I believe, and a lot of small island countries out there, actually. And this is a good company to actually advocate for loss and damage finance, for international support, for adaptation. And so we're trying to to kind of uh, bring our countries there because we have a lot of vulnerable countries that um, maybe. maybe still don't know how to um, actively communicate what they need on the international platforms like cop and so the urgency i would say is not yet there but i think we're getting there so i'm really hopeful for the next cop in terms not in terms of like the decisions made for like because of paris like the within paris agreement because I mean, I've been to four cops already. This was my fifth one. I followed it online. And I see that if you expect too much of uh, concrete decisions, uh, legally binding decisions coming out from COP, you will be disappointed again and again. Because this is not the place to do that. This is a place to uh, show off about your results, to share what you have done uh, as a country, um, to show the trends, to follow the trends, to make new alliances and to network. And uh, this is actually what our countries are beginning to do, finally, like understanding that they need to be present in this space, that they need to prepare, that they need to... Actually, we had consultations with some delegations this year. So they have come to the civil society experts uh, in order to consult in the preparation for COP. So I I see a lot of good signs that they understand they need... financial support, they understand that they can get it uh, in COP, uh, during COP, or they need international alliances. And for example, Ukraine joined the uh, powering past coal alliance yep. and uh, mm-hmm. they have announced the date uh, to phase out coal in uh, electricity by 2035 um, and like methane pledge like all these kind of international friendships were being made and finally some of our countries were popping up in this um, in this alliances and it means that they understand that this like climate diplomacy the green diplomacy is actually something that they need to pay attention to and they need to Invest in so that's I would say the main result for our region from 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 this COP, not the kind of the, um, the yeah the commas and the the the, the words from from the text itself.
2: So just as maybe a short follow up question to that, um, do I understand correctly that uh, you say that the COP has uh, its usefulness, of course, but it should uh, like people should not expect from it miracles. So it cannot be the solution to the whole. Uh, climate change issue so people should be should of course go to the COP but it has its limitations is that what you're trying to say?
1: Uh, People should go to the COP and they need to gather like they need to prepare and they need to network and they need to invest in this preparation because when you are there you only have a limited amount of time to actually make this those connections to tell the world about yourself basically and to uh, absorb what is happening what are the trends and uh, this is the main thing you need to understand but then uh, like obviously in two weeks we cannot decide on the things that we cannot do during the year you know because the main work is being done on the national and on the local level uh, when we leave COP so during the COP, we need to see, aha, OK, there is a new text uh, in the Paris Agreement that finally mentions fossil fuels. It's not fossil fuel phase out, it's not legally binding, but it's a good trend. And so this is the trend that the parties will come home with. They will understand that this is actually inevitable and that uh, this is something that they need to. So how it happens is that our countries first, they need to be aware of what's happening. They need to get this information to themselves. Then they need to start actually bringing the back. So they need to uh, make these announcements like uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine going climate neutral. Uh, do they have concrete plans? How are they gonna be climate neutral until 2060? Not yet, not at all, right? But they need to start producing this kind of narrative themselves first before they actually go to the next step, which is uh, creating concrete plans. And they will not create concrete plans during COP. They will sit down before COP, uh, between, like in between COPs, during the year. And they will do that. And then there will be erection from civil society. There will be, hopefully, local uh, climate and adaptation plans. So this is a lot of work that needs to be done during the year. But the COP is kind of like... um uh, like a litmus paper for uh, the state of the things. You know, if no if no delegation, like uh, if there is like a few people from delegation, if there's no one from the civil society, if no one is speaking at the uh, high level event, well, then probably the country is not also doing anything during the year or they do not uh, feel that it's important. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe that cops are very important in this sense because uh, this is an international platform. Hmm.
0: Speaking of uh, national um, climate pledges, uh, under the new pact, countries uh, will be asked to revisit and strengthen their 2030 climate plans by the end of 2022 to keep 1.5 degrees um, alive. What do you think we can expect from Eurasia?
1: Most of our countries have submitted a new national determined contributions to Paris Agreement this year. Uh, They have worked uh, for few years on them so it wasn't a, um, a quick thing to do uh, especially if there were like if, if, if it was a democratic process if there were some consultations you know so it takes time so uh it's uh, highly unlikely for me to imagine them just all, like doing you know um Redoing all of that uh, because there are so many stakeholders involved and you need to go through this whole process again So it it will take a lot of time a lot of money a lot of resources, but there are countries like uh, so Russia Kazakhstan who did not yet renew the national determined contribution. So they did not submit. Um, they only have the first one from like 16, 17. And uh, this might be a chance for them to actually do a better job. Because uh, the previous uh, goal, for example, for Russia, uh, the intended national determined contribution, they have uh, promised for the emissions to be on the level of 70 to 75 percent, so a range, and then they've renewed it and just left 70 you know, so that basically didn't change anything, but it was kind of uh, considered a, a more ambitious goal. So we need to we need to look for the for those kind of things, for those kind of tricks, and as, as well as the comparison with the 1990, because in the 1990, uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union, we had emissions that were so much higher. In all of the countries of the Eastern Europe, Caucasus and Central Asia. And right now, when we compare uh, and say that we will lower emissions compared to 1990, we need to check the numbers. We need to see numbers and not the basic, the, the, the basic year. Because mostly our, our goals say that um, we will actually give ourselves some time to uh, make the emissions uh, rise a bit and then uh, make them lower at some point somewhere. <laughs>
2: Um, I have a question to you about the so-called Article 6. So many, some of our listeners might remember that we had actually an episode on Article 6 during the COP. Brazil, Russia, China and India, they have lobbied to enable old carbon credits from the Kyoto Protocol era – to transition to the Paris carbon market. And uh, under these rules, credits that were registered from 2013 will be allowed to be traded and be used by countries towards meeting their climate plans. And uh, our guest in the Article 6 episode, Gilles Dufresne, who's a policy officer at uh, Carbon Market Watch, said that this would mean that around 300 million cheap and poor quality credits are being allowed under the new market. Uh, And he called this cleansing climate targets on paper, but actually spoiling the atmosphere in reality. Could you explain to us the implications of the new Article 6 and um, how did countries in Eurasia push to weaken it?
1: So the main question here that you need to understand is who will buy it? Who will buy those outdated uh, credits and actually uh, sign the projects uh, to use them. Because uh, this is the main kind of uh, narrative that us also um, we were kind of uh, creating within our uh, discussions as a region. Um, the fact that this will just mean that uh, the market prices could uh, fall. And uh, that it will be not as interesting to actually uh, do those projects um, because of this outdated. Uh, so, for example, Ukraine was against uh, this uh, shifting uh, from the Kyoto Protocol. And um, yeah, the main, the main message that I got from the experts who are following the Article 6 c- uh, concretely um, is that uh, this will just uh, ruin, like mess with the market for, for a few years and uh, kind of Delay the actually actually the dates when the uh, real projects could be submitted because it will not be interesting for other countries to 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 buy those things. It's like it's, I don't know. It's like with the nuclear power plant in Belarus. Who will buy this? Like you need to understand if you're if you're fighting for something, then you need to understand. Um, and you want to do a collaboration like who will be your customer who will be your partner in this because the U the eu will not be and the, actually um the uh, the asia is also uh probably will not be interested in for example russian uh projects
2: so were there any countries in eastern europe that um in particular lobbied to soften article six and who for whom it's a big deal, for whom uh, those uh, carbon offs- offsets are really important?
1: I mean, uh, yeah, there was Russia in the room usually, um, trying to stir up the the, the pot. But uh, the problem with the poor participation from our countries in many cases uh, is the fact that they do not always have strong positions that they push independently for. So there are alliances made and the delegations are actually um, kind of... Um, lean on on each other and and usually lean on the geopolitical influencer in this case right so they kind of accept what the uh russia for example is pushing for right um and uh, of course with like talked about russia a lot today but like the the climate neutrality goal and the fact that they um hope to use the forest which will miraculously um, um absorb more and more carbon with which each year it's uh, it's it's uh, it's an unreal goal and it's, it's just uh, um yeah it's just unrealistic and it's uh, trying to use well the carbon market is it's it is Like this it's market it's it's made to make money right so um this is the main and when it stays the main focus then the the people who the countries that are like strong economies and they um are not really ready to um, do anything about climate unless it brings them uh, enormous um, um, profit, uh, maybe the same profit as they get right now from fossil fuels, um, then those countries will, of course, be against this kind of regulations. And um, yeah, they're, they're, with, like the, with any carbon market, it's always a problem. And it was a problem with the clean development mechanism in Kyoto Protocol. We actually, like the emissions rose since that time. Like, we did not lower our emissions, not 1% in the world. So that's there's that. there's This is the problem. Hmm. There was a
0: great big push
1: for another channel of
0: climate finance to be open on um, loss and damage. Um, so support for the victims of extreme weather and rising seas. There was the creation of uh, the Santiago Network, which provided some necessary funding, um, Germany has pledged 10 million euros um, to that fund. Um, could you tell us how the countries of the bloc positioned themselves on, on loss and damage, how important
1: it was for them? I would say that for for the post-Soviet countries, this is a very new language. Because um, I see that a lot, for example, from the point of view of Khan International, the loss and damage finance was a, um, a critical thing and this was the main focus of the communication it was the main focus of what we were what the Can international and um, many members were following actually but in our case it's a bit different because we are entering when we talk about loss and damage inevitably entering into the uh, division of the world into the global south and global north into the colonizers and colonized and like who needs to pay who. And then we get lost when we are thinking about the post-Soviet countries, like uh, where do we fall in this picture? Because it's uh, it's much more obvious with the kind of post-colonial countries uh, that actually are obviously suffering right now and uh, going underwater and then the countries who actually colonized them um, back in the day and uh, caused this thing and used their uh, resources for uh, development that they have right now that's a much more understandable thing than going into like okay but what about central asia who is uh, responsible there? Russia, okay, but Russia is also uh, suffering, you know, but they just don't acknowledge that, <laughs> um, and so that, it, it becomes much more difficult um, when we try to understand what loss and damage means for our country. So I would say this year, in the, all all of the conversations that we've had, all of the um, all of the meetings, etc., I th- I hope that we've we were at least able to pass this message through that there is such thing as loss and damage payment, that this is a separate financial uh, aid. And uh, that some of our countries, uh, the most vulnerable ones, as once I mentioned, like Kyrgyzstan and Armenia could join the, the Climate Vulnerable Forum, that they actually can uh, use this in their uh, communication, that they actually can ask for that. And they are not asking for that. They do not, uh, I think, um, they, they are not aware of the such an opportunity and um, at the table of the discussion of loss and damage, um, you will rarely, for now, see representatives from our countries because uh, they are neither at the part of the like the blamed ones, right? The ones that need to pay, and they are not in the part of the people who are actually demanding this money. Um, so I think that some of our countries might appear at that second part of the d- demand. Uh, but I would uh, hesitate to see any, uh, any of our countries at the, at the part of the, like, the pain side. So, um, yeah, I would say that this is the the new language for our region. And same as like climate neutrality was a new thing like three years ago, we will get there eventually. But it's more about the most vulnerable countries. So I think Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, hopefully Belarus, like they, they will be okay. They they have a bit of different, uh, like this is not going to be the main focus. My focus would be like energy and mitigation, uh, adaptation as well. How much do you think... COP26 was followed
0: by people who weren't able to go there um, in the region. Do you think um, people will be disappointed by the relative lack of action um, and that it will spur activism within the, the region?
1: What i definitely seen and what inspired me so much is the interest is interest from uh kyrgyzstan for example um because uh, as i said there were like two people but those people were constantly calling back and there were like zoom meetings of the people who did not go um with them and they were showing what's happening and updating and giving interviews in glasgow and uh, there's a lot of this sense of okay this is a super huge important uh, platform we need to be on it next year so there's there's been a lot of this kind of feeling and um from the point of view of ukraine i would say um maybe russia as well maybe moldova like um more and more youth people are actually interested in finding their place there because this is for us as well like it feels like we're a bit like behind in many things but um this is this is you know this is where you are if, if if you have a difficult political situation you need to catch up very quickly and um i see more and more youth interested in in, in the conference uh and trying to get there and trying to be um, you know active there so uh i mean i'm only positive that there will be more and more presence of our region at cop uh regarding the kind of the the mood right now It's actually really hard to say because uh, it seems like everyone is so overwhelmed That they almost don't have additional space to be overwhelmed by COP as well, you know. It's like almost uh, so many things to care about and to be disappointed about. And I don't know, like so many difficulties and it's the end of the year. So I don't feel that despair directly, you know, channeled into COP. It feels like people are trying to find something positive. Some good trends came out of that. Okay, so what do we do now? And there's a lot, a lot of hope for the next year. I hope it's not going to be uh, for nothing. And uh, there are definitely really good trends in terms of activism that I see in our countries. But it's always, for us, it's always uh, a question of, okay, but... What about the political regime like how how actually able are going to be like how how able are these people going to be to uh do what they are aspiring to do or they will be you know their wings will be cut off and they will need to figure out something else so that for us is uh, usually the first question before the climate action okay but what about the the civil society participation what about the human rights etc etc
2: thank you very much Olga
1: thank you (laughs)
0: Thank you very much to Olga Boyko from Climate Action Network for joining us on the podcast. Now, let's take a look at the latest news from across our region. Wholesale gas prices in the EU and UK surged by 17% on Tuesday after Germany's energy regulator suspended approval of Russia's Nord Stream 2, the BBC reports. The 10 billion euro natural gas pipeline is set to link Germany with Russia through the Baltic Sea. Germany's regulator has said it needs to be compliant with German law before it can greenlight the project. Vast quantities of methane are being leaked from gas and oil fields in Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan and Russia, according to data collected by the European Union's satellite monitoring system. Methane is eight times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. Scientists told Space.com the leaks were much larger than expected. The Czech Republic has rejected a proposal by Poland to settle a dispute over a brown lignite mine located close to the border, Reuters reports on the 16th of November. Prague argues the mine steals its water and causes pollution, while Warsaw states the mine is critical to its energy security. At the time of recording, Poland was due to ask its top court to examine the legality of fines from the European Court of Justice. The International Energy Association has launched a cross-border electricity trading roadmap for Tajikistan with the aim of making full use of the country's unique hydropower potential. Tajikistan's national development strategy aims to more than triple its annual electricity exports to at least 10 terawatt hours by 2030. This is roughly 50% of the country's overall electricity generation at current levels. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. We'd also like to thank our supporters at The Battleground magazine. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter, where you'll find us, at Eurasian Climate. We'll be back soon with a new episode, so see you then.